congratulations. If you're listening to this, that means you've clicked on the Chaos Ball Podcast. Excellent decision. Your task now, should you choose to accept it, but you have to accept it, is to spread the word of the Chaos Ball Podcast to everyone you know, and they too can make that same great choice and press play on this podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back, everyone, to the Chaos Ball Podcast. Of course, you know why you're here. You are here to listen to the best and most chaotic baseball podcast on the internet. And let me tell you, we have a loaded episode today. There's a lot of stuff to get into. Uh, I will go over, first and foremost, the most important news that came out since I last potted, which was a couple weeks ago. There was a study done uh, with some technology. Uh, researchers at gambling.com turned to popular beauty measurement app Golden Ratio Face to help determine which MLB managers are aging like fine wines and whose sideline stresses and strains have taken their toll throughout their managerial careers. Yeah. Yeah, you heard me. Uh, this, this was something obviously not expecting to see. However, I was pleasantly surprised because this is exactly the type of content I want to put on this podcast. It's uh, pointless, uh, but it's hilarious. And I, I came across it because our own Ryan Divish retweeted, uh, this press release that was given out, uh, because, uh, Mariners manager Scott Service ranked number three most handsome American league manager and number seven overall in the MLB. I do have some things to point out um, that are strange about this. Uh, the National League dominated the top five. Um, uh, apparently, Buck Showalter took the number one Silver Fox top spot. Um, then it went on from, from there. So the top five was Buck Showalter, Rob Thompson of the Phillies, Tori Louvelu of the Arizona Diamondbacks, David Ross of the Chicago Cubs, and Terry Francona of the Cleveland Guardians. Um... I, I have numerous questions, obviously, um, would love to know how this, this app determines uh, beauty and handsomeness. I'm assuming it's some sort of symmetry of the face, and rather than, uh, I think if you run a poll for who the hottest manager in the MLB was, uh, and gave everyone, like, the option of looking at the headshot that they have, I think Gabe Kapler would have to be by far the number one, right? Right? Like, come on, let's be rational here. It's definitely Gabe Kapler. Um, definitely not Buck Showalter. Although, I mean, you know, he looks good for his age, that's for sure. I, I'm i wondering if they even had Gabe Kapler on here. That probably would have been rude to everyone else. He would have knocked it out of the park. Because there's a lot of Silver Fox stuff on here. Um, I mean, most managers are pretty old, to be fair. So, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how they determine what criteria, but... I don't know how Kapler isn't number one in every um, beauty ranking metric for MLB managers. Uh, he definitely should be. But uh, Dusty Baker flying the flag for the over 70s, ranked in sixth place with the overall hotness score of 7.95. I don't think Dusty is a bad looking fella, but sixth overall? Is this just the olds? Did they just pull? Did they just put like the olds, like over 50s? I guess that would be fair. Even playing field. Uh, the other thing I would love to say about this is Matt Quattrero, who's the Royals manager, came in last in their facial recognition rankings, and he was named the face for the radio manager, which is 
honestly hilarious. Like, please, I need the Royals to do some run with that this year. Get a chip on his shoulder, you know? He's going he's gonna to out-coach all of the competition this year because of that. Ugh, okay. Well, that was um, that was the news. That was all the stuff that happened since the last potted. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, be sure to tune in every week for really important updates like this. Obviously, I am kidding, guys. Come on. What else has happened since I last potted? Um, a lot, of, a lot of stuff has happened. I will get to. There's been quite a bit of manner stuff that happened. I will get to that. Uh, but I'm going to go over the rest of the league news first, and then I'll get to the Mariners in the latter half of the podcast. A couple things from today, specifically the 23rd, when this podcast will be released. Uh, we find out the Hall of Fame voting results tomorrow to see who will join Fred McGriff in the Hall of Fame. I have avoided doing a Hall of Fame episode as... Everyone has their own opinion on what the Hall of Fame will be, and I don't need to make an episode ranting about what I think the Hall of Fame should be. Maybe in the future, but not right now. I'll just see what happens tomorrow with the voting, and I'm sure there will be opinions thrown. I'm sure. I am happy to see Fred Griff in the Hall of Fame, though, however. So, either way, definitely successful. Shout out to Fred McGriff. Uh, the other piece of news before I really get into the transactions and stuff that happened... I uh, just found out today that the Angels owners, the Moreno family, specifically Art Moreno, the main owner, is not going to sell the team, which is a fantastic decision from an AOS rival standpoint and baseball standpoint. Um, actually, honestly, I take that back. From an AOS rival standpoint, it's great. Obviously, Angels are pretty incompetent. Uh, he's definitely a big reason for that, and it's awesome he's not selling the team. We can see them plummet further into disaster of an organization uh, for baseball, it's not great specifically just because they have Mike Trout and Shohei Otani right now. And I imagine if a takeover would have happened this offseason, even potentially, the first thing they might have done was pay Shohei Otani what he wanted, like $500 million potentially. I don't know, but we'll never know now because he's definitely not staying on the team. There's no way, there's no chance he, he pays him that contract. So that was the, the short little news before I really get into it. And now the big thing that everyone's talking about since I last potted, Carlos Correa is finally employed. Everyone give it up. Give a hand for Carlos Correa and Scott Boris. They finally got a deal done. He was a giant, and then he was a Met. And now he's back with the Minnesota Twins where he resided last season uh, the, the blurb is Charlotte, Charlos Correa. Yeah, I'm not editing that out. This is, this is uncut, uncut mistakes. I've only made one ever, and it's that one. Shortstop Carlos Correa and the Minnesota Twins are finalizing a six-year, $200 million contract. The deal also has a vesting option that can max at $270 million. So, like, $33 million average annual value, more for any of the other shortstops that signed this year, but obviously basically half uh, the amount of time, just what a saga this was, what a saga, I can't believe he's finally signed, I felt like he was never going to sign anywhere, like, we've talked about this before on the pod, obviously, and everyone has talked about this, but what an absolute story this has been, uh, and I'm first and foremost very happy for Carlos Correa, that he's finally signed and knows where he's going to be, um, has a lot of guaranteed money now, good for him, and 
if things go well too, I mean, he'll be hitting the market again at his age 34, 35 season. So still another opportunity for a, a contract down the road as well. Uh, this deal, when it was announced, obviously was pending a physical, like every deal in the MLB is. And the Twins had the opportunity to to do the funniest thing they could have done and back out of the deal. Uh, I mean, no, listen, that would have been awful for Carlos Correa, but wouldn't have that been just great content for everyone involved? Like, that would have been fantastic. But no, they went ahead with the deal. For better or for worse, uh, for Mets and Giants, um, they they both had issues with his ankle injury that we've obviously touched on. But there was new news that came out since last time we podcasted that the Mets used the same ankle specialist as the Giants, which is super interesting. Uh, I'm wondering why, like, if they got another specialist as well, because when I first heard that, it made sense to me in my head. Like, I, I would, as the Mets, I would also want to contact the Giants to see like what exactly they saw. So getting the same ankle specialist makes sense to tell you basically the same thing. Um, they get more of a reason on why the Giants backed out. But I feel like they should have gotten another opinion as well, right? Like maybe they did. Uh, we just don't know. Maybe they did. Or their internal doctors decided it was a good call. But it just feels like getting the same specialist is really something interesting to me if that's the only thing you go off of. Because obviously I'm sure they're very qualified, but... That's it's just super interesting news that came out. I doubt we'll ever know exactly how those talks went on, exactly what the doctors saw. Maybe we will when Cray retires or something, or Scott Boris starts a podcast when he retires from being an agent and he's a billionaire. But we'll see. We'll see if that ever happens. I doubt we'll ever really know the details of those contract talks. And I'm just wondering, did the twins also see the same specialist? Did they ask the same specialist the same questions? Obviously, the twins know more about Carlos Correa's health than every other team, especially going into this offseason, considering he was on the team last year. So I think they probably had a very good grasp on his health. Um, do they They obviously know about his, his ankle injuries in the past. Do they have different info from a different specialist that tells them he should be fine? Uh, obviously, it's a shorter-term deal, so they probably recognize this ankle injury, but from the twins perspective, I'm assuming it just means maybe the doctors figured out like over these six years, if he can play 60% at least of his games, it will probably be worthwhile deal. And maybe they're projecting like, yeah, maybe he does miss some time with this angle injury. Maybe if it comes to manifest itself in a bad way, maybe we can come sit out a whole year with surgery, reconstruction, anything. Um, and his ankle should be fine after that. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what happens. Um, cause maybe the twins just don't care. Obviously it's a shorter term deal, but maybe they just don't care about his ankle injury. They're like, well, the product on the field is fantastic. So we'll pay for that. Uh, and I know their owner really, really likes Carlos Correa, like really does. So that also, tri- but point is Carlos Correa is a Minnesota twin yet again. It's really interesting that he signed that three year deal with them last year with the player opt out, obviously, uh, he opted out, and I'm sure the Twins uh, probably thought they had no chance to re-sign him since he opted out, but look what happens. Look how the universe works sometimes. He's back in their clutches. Uh, the Twins are a very interesting baseball team. 
Um, one of the big reasons is now that I'm going to talk about this big trade that just happened a couple days ago, uh, the Luis Arias trade. The Twins sent their all-star second baseman, Luis Arias, to the Marlins for right-handed pitcher Pablo Lopez and prospects Jose Salas and Byron Chirio. Chirio? Chirio? Cheerios. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Salas is, or was, I'm pretty sure the Marlins number three or four prospect. Prospect rankings hadn't come out before this for each team, so I think he was in the three to five range, so highly touted among the Marlins organization. Take that what you will based on what they've done. Uh, and then Byron Cheerio is 17 and was just playing in the DSL last year. He had good numbers, but obviously there's not many rankings for those guys just yet. You just got to See what they can do stateside first to really form an opinion on them. But two prospects and Pablo Lopez for Luis Arise. Um, And from the Twins' perspective here, I understand it at face value for the Twins. It makes some sense. They get uh, a reliable front-end starter that they kind of need, right? Um, and they kind of, I want to say, capitalize on Arise's value right now because he's a very unique player, very unique player, but... Maybe they think last year was his best season he could have, and they are mortgaging a little bit of their middle infield, given that they just signed Carlos Correa for a pitcher that they really need. Pablo Lopez is a great pitcher. Uh, and I think they they have Royce Lewis down there in AAA waiting to come up, and he'll likely play second base or third if he comes up because Correa is now at shortstop. Uh, it's interesting for the Twins now. I mean, they have... I think Jose Miranda will start at third base for them. But now second base, they could play Kirilov, uh, Nick Gordon, or like Royce Lewis, who I talked about, can all play second base. Uh, and I, So I think they just thought they were probably set there. Lisa Rise is not like a guy who will propel the Twins to the postseason and beyond. The Most of that will rely on their pitching staff. But then offensively, Basically, they're very reliant on Carlos Correa putting up a 5-6 to six war season, as he's one to do, and Buxton playing more than like 110, 120 games this year. That's kind of their their X-factors. Arias is just a great hitter, but I don't think he's really much of an X-factor for that team. Um, so from the Twins' perspective, this makes some sense for me, and that's all I'm going to talk about with the Twins, uh, except before I, I end, they're, they're fascinating to, to look at simply because they have like seven viable starting pitchers now. Like their their rotation is now going to look like Joe Ryan, Sonny Gray, Pablo Lopez, Bailey Obers in there, Tyler Molly's in there, Kenta Maeda. They just re-signed Chris Paddock. They got Randy Dobnak, who will I mean he's he can be an opener as well, but that's a lot of viable starting pitching. I feel like the the floor of these starters is high, but the ceiling is pretty low. I think these are all like very solid number three starters for for a lot of teams. I I don't know who the opening day starter is going to be. I want to say it'll be Lopez now, but I guess they could they could hand that to Sonny Gray if they wanted to. Uh, it's just a it's a fascinating team to look at, and I look forward to looking at them more in depth when I do my uh, my preseason podcasts. Um, but that is it from the Twins from this perspective. Now let's talk about the Miami Marlins, which is always a fun topic because they are maybe the most confusing team in baseball, at least the past decade, just a confusing organization. Uh, I, 
I just have never really seen the vision of what they want their team to be. This trade and stuff they've done this offseason lends me to believe they actually do have a plan. The plan, it's a little strange to me. Uh, so they trade Pablo Lopez as expected, uh, and he was kind of the last domino to fall in this offseason. Uh, besides like Brian Reynolds, it was kind of those two trade guys. Everyone, all the big guys had signed, some bigger guys had gotten traded already. It was kind of those two, so... We knew this was going to happen. It was just when and to trading to who and what was the haul. So they get Luis Arias, uh, and he, who is Luis Arias? Apparently, he's a very, very good guy. Uh, he is um, a a guy who I think was just he was just in the wrong era. Like he's such a unique player for this day and age of baseball because he's just an elite contact hitter, not a whole lot of power. Uh, and it's his power numbers went up a little bit last year. His hard hit rate increased a little bit. I think his barrel rate increased. His slugging went up a little bit because uh, he had more doubles last year, more gap power. Really no home run power upside there, but an elite contact guy who will probably hit 300 for his career at least. Just a very unique guy in this day and age in baseball. Kind of a dead ball era guy. Just, just a pure contact hitter. You don't see that too much anymore. And I, I think what the Marlins are now going for and what they've realized in these past few years is they had a huge ballpark, right? A big outfield, just a massive ballpark. And one, they got rid of the dinger machine, which was a big mistake because obviously that's where the power of their dingers were coming from. Uh, Come on. Why would you get rid of that thing? It was the best thing to look at ever. It was the most unique thing in any outfield in baseball. I mean, it was objectively very ugly. I'm joking, but it was, it was, like, fun. Like, there's nothing about the Marlins that are fun right now except for Jazz Chisholm. But they built this team. They got some power hitters. They got some dudes who could sock dingers who aren't necessarily very good defensively. And it's like, that's not going to work in your ballpark. And so now I want to say they're pivoting to bringing back the dead ball era baseball, baby. They signed Gene Segura, who's basically an older, worse Luis Arias. Very, very heavy contact guy and I'm much older now. And now they're just saying no to dingers, yes please to contact. Going to play small ball. Part of what comes along with that is really good defense to back it up, though. And that is not who Luis Arias is. Which is where this trade confuses me from the Marlins' perspective. In a vacuum, it makes a lot of sense. They need more guys like this on their team. They need guys who can get on base a lot uh, and don't really strike out a lot. They don't need more dingers and guys who strike out. They need an Arias who you can put at the top of the order and you kind of know he's going to hit 300 for you that year and probably have a decent on-base percentage. He has more walks and strikeouts in his career. Get a really unique guy. Uh, and that's just like the only thing he's really great at. I mean, it's a good thing to be really good at, but defensively he's just poor. And it sounds like they might try to play him at first – Uh, which would obviously minimize his defensive woes. It's not ideal, but that is ideally where you can hide a guy who's poor defensively. But they have, like, four second basemen now, which is, like, they have Luis Arise and Garrett Cooper, who can both play first. They have Jazz Chisholm, who we'll talk about, Joey Wendell, Gene Segura, John Birdie, and even, like, um, a guy like Jordan Groshans, who can all play second base, shortstop, third base. And... And they trade for Luis Arias, who will most likely play first base now. It's just so interesting because uh, now I think their their infield's going to look like 
Gene Segura at third base. I guess Joey Wendell at short. I don't know. Joey Wendell's a fantastic defensive third baseman. I wouldn't move him from that spot. And then maybe Gene will, will play second. And I don't. I just don't know because they traded Miguel Rojas too, which I'll talk about. It's just a weird team. It's just a weird team. And another team like the Twins, I'm kind of fascinated to dig more into just because the makeup is really weird. And then they announced they're going to move Jazz Chisholm to center field after this trade happened, which what a Marlins thing to do. It's like if anyone could go from second to playing center field with no outfield experience, I would bet on jazz Chisholm. He's awesome. He's a great athlete, but it's like, that's so hard to do because he has no outfield experience in the minors. He came up as a shortstop and has moved to second base and placing someone in center field. It's not even like they're putting him in the corners. They're putting him in center field. It's the, that and shortstop and, and catcher. Those are the premium positions. And I just don't, I can't see it going super well, to be honest. And it's the Marlins though, so who knows? It's just such a, such a weird organization. And I don't know, it's going to be fascinating to see how many different guys play the different infield positions for them this year. Because they can all kind of play all over the diamond on the infield. And they're going to have to try to find the Goldilocks just right fit for all of these guys in the infield. And it'll just be interesting. And and Jazz Chisel moving to center field is another thing that we'll have to look out for. I also am just confused. Like they have uh, Jesus Sanchez and Brian De La Cruz in the in the waiting for outfield. And I've heard De La Cruz is a good center fielder. I know Jesus Sanchez can play center field too. I just that's why this trade made sense, but not sense. Which is kind of just like the whole Marlins existence at this point. And then uh, the Jazz Chisholm being announced moving to center field really reminded me of the time D Gordon got moved to center field. Do you guys remember that? That went great. No problems were had there, right? He was he was an elite defensive sec or center fielder. <laughs> I and Jazz also had knee and back problems last year, which I'm sure would go great if he was running around in center field. Listen, the Marlins confusing. Confusing. The last thing I'll say about this trade is Pablo Lopez is really cool. Uh, he could have gone to medical school. He's a very smart dude. Apparently, his family wanted him to go to medical school. Uh, but baseball-wise, he was a really weird fit in that rotation. I mean, obviously, he, he's a great pitcher, but like they have Sandy Alcantara, who's awesome, power guy. Jesus Lazardo, power guy. Like Edward Cabrera, power guy. Trevor Rogers. They have these dudes who will overpower you with their fastball, their number one pitch. And then you have this Pablo Lopez fellow who is, he doesn't, he doesn't like throw 90 miles an hour. Like he throws the ball decently hard, but his fastball is by far not his best pitch. He gets people out with that changeup, which is what I appreciate about him. I'm a changeup guy. Uh, and he throws that changeup all the time. And it was just a, it was just a fun little fit in that rotation. He's a, he's a really good pitcher to watch and a, a really change of pace from all of the other pitchers. But now he's gone and on the twins so that is something that was a big trade big big trade there's been quite a few trades that happened of late it leads me to believe i feel like brian reynolds is soon whoever is gonna trade for him i think it's soon or the pirates will just hold on to him and i can't imagine brian reynolds would be super happy if they did that so more to come from the brian reynolds saga and while we're on 
the Marlins. They made a trade uh, before this, like last week. They traded Miguel Rojas, their shortstop, to the Dodgers for infield prospect Jacob Amaya. So that's another infielder they have who is a prospect, obviously not in the majors yet, but another infielder for the Marlins. And I know Amaya, I don't know a lot about Jacob Amaya, but he's, I know he's pretty highly touted defensively. I think that's his best tool. I think it graded out as like a 60 on the scout scale scale for for skills and I think he'll slot in as the Marlins number like 10 to 15 in that range of their top prospects we'll have to see where he's ranked when those rankings get released uh I don't have much to touch on from the Marlins it makes sense they did this and then signed Segura and traded for Luis Arias so really they I mean they didn't need him to go Rojas no he's pretty solid for the Dodgers it's interesting Rojas was back in their team uh he was on their team in 2014, and they traded him. Uh, he's really good defensively, elite defensive shortstop. Um, really doesn't strike out much either. There's not much else to him other than that, but that's very valuable. Um, great defense, doesn't strike out a lot. Like, honestly, would have fit the archetype that the Marlins are going for right now, it seems like, maybe with these additions, which is weirder that they traded him. Again, it's the Marlins, dude. I can't get rabbit hole with the freaking Marlins all the time. They're just fascinating to look at as an organization. But from the Dodgers standpoint, I'm confused at their offseason. First of all, uh, it's not like this is a bad trade. I mean, they have so many prospects. Like, they're not going to miss Jacob Amaya. But going into 2023 with Miguel Rojas as your shoe-in starting shortstop is not very Dodgers-like to me. Uh, I mean, obviously they're still a good team and it's the Dodgers. So they will have numerous prospects come up this year and contribute a lot to the team. Um, I'm assuming like Bobby Miller will come up this year and pitch for them. Michael Bush is one of the better prospects in baseball will come up and play. I think he plays second middle infield. I'm sure he'll be in the majors. Andy pages, uh, outfielder will probably be in the majors this year too and all of those guys like Dodgers prospects will probably be quite good because they're really just a machine over there with player development so they need a starting shortstop and if you weren't gonna re-sign Trey Turner and they evidently didn't sign any of the big four they traded for Miguel Rojas, who came up with them, and they at least know he's really, really good defensively, so they can fall back on that and try to replace the offensive production from Trey Turner and other areas of their team. Just uh, not a very Dodgers-like offseason to me. Didn't feel like a, a Death Star-ish sort of offseason. They're kind of just reloading, and they'll be good, but we'll have to see what happens with their prospects this year for sure. Uh, the Dodgers also, while we're on them, they released Trevor Bauer. So now any team can sign him for the league minimum. Nobody has signed him yet. Uh, I really hope nobody signs him. Just doesn't deserve to play in the MLB again. I can't, I will not talk more about Trevor Bauer. He doesn't deserve airtime, but real, real piece of shit. Uh, I will say that I think the Dodgers really mishandled that whole situation. Not the suspension or anything, but they waited till the last possible day to do anything about it after they DFA'd him, right? Uh, presumably because they were trying to trade him rather than just release him, even though they probably should have just released him immediately, which would have been the right thing to do because clearly no one wanted to trade for him. And I 
I don't know. I can't see anyone signing him. I just don't think the the PR and bad publicity like risks outweigh the rewards at this point for him, especially because he's so far removed from pitching in the majors. Like he was so good in that 2020 season, but now if someone signs him this off season to pitch, that'll be three years removed from pitching in the majors. I just three years older. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. That's it on Trevor Bauer, and that's it on the Dodgers. There's just a couple more signings and stuff I want to touch on before I really get into what the Mariners have done, because uh, they have done quite a bit. So this last half of the podcast will be mainly about them. But a couple things that happened, uh, the Cubs, they signed Trey Mancini, which is cool. Uh, he was another guy the Mariners could have signed, could have used the DH backup first baseman, would have been... A fine signing, but obviously we can't have too many nice things. Uh, but it's great. Great dude. Uh, obviously a fantastic story. Uh, really not a good postseason with the Astros, but got a ring and gets to reload now with the Cubs, who appear to be somewhat trying to contend these next few years. And another team that's interesting in face value right now, especially their offense. I think their offense could be... Could be good. I don't know. I got to look at it more. Just face value. I think their offense is obviously better than last year's. And they got some very interesting X-Factor high ceiling guys on that team that could really make that offense fun. But uh, what else has happened? Uh, Andrew McCutcheon. Back with the Pirates. A really cool reunion for him and the city of Pittsburgh. I know they love him over there. He won his MVP with the Pirates. He was like the guy in the last decade. And part of that really, really fun Pirates team with like Chris Archer, Garrett Cole. Like those teams were so good and they blew it all up, unfortunately. But he'll be back with the Pirates this season. And he's, it's not like it would be just a signing for him to sit on the bench and be a culture guy because he's reuniting, reuniting, reuniting with the team, reuniting with the team. <laughs> See, I'm not editing that out either. I'm authentic. All right, you're getting the uncut version, like I said earlier. Um, but it's it's not, again, it's not like a, a reunion where he's not going to play. He's going to play. Uh, he's still a pretty good ball player and still very fast somehow in this late stage of his career. Uh, and again, it's another like uh, babysitter for those young Pirates hitters uh, and that wisdom and his presence in the clubhouse and in the dugout will be invaluable to a lot of these young guys trying to figure out in the league right now. So that will be very cool to see him back in the Pirates jersey. Kutch is one of the more likable guys in baseball and has been for a long time. So super, super cool to see him back with the Pirates. And then another elder statesman of Major League Baseball, the Padres signed Nelson Cruz, which is more of like a, a culture guy, I feel like. Obviously, he's not a, he's never been on the Padres, but... I want the Mariners to sign him just for this reason. You could still slot in at DH for a little bit and uh, be an all-time clubhouse guy. Like he's awesome. Uh, he's he's also the Dominican Republic's WBC team GM, which is sick because that team is loaded. And I think him being the GM on that team and getting to not like mentor, but like just talk shop with all these guys, help them out at all, build the team with all that Dominican talent is fantastic. <laughs> and it's just amazing. He is their GM. Cause it's like the easiest GM job in the world. Their team is freaking loaded. 
It's awesome. And the last thing about Nelson Cruz I want to touch on is I'm just fascinated to see how many plate appearances he gets this year on the Padres. Um, definitely look out for that. I just, I don't know. I don't know how many plate appearances he'll get. Like 200, 300? He got like 400 or something last year. Like he played a lot of baseball last year, surprisingly. So Padres uh, definitely addressed a lot of depth issues this year. And at worst, Nelson Cruz is a depth DH guy who will be awesome in the clubhouse. So good for Nelson Cruz. Um, definitely says something about the Potters organization right now, too, that Nelson Cruz is definitely wanting to win a ring. He's never done that before, and he chose the Padres with, obviously, young Dominican, like Dominican talent on there, too, that you can bond with. So interesting, interesting stuff. And selfishly for Nelson Cruz, I'm not a Padres fan. I, I do have a soft spot for the Padres, but... I hope he wins a ring with them. If not the Mariners next year, why not the Padres? Get Nelson Cruz a ring. Let's start that campaign, huh? And with that, the first half of the pod is done. Now, on to the Mariners stuff. Now, what have the Mariners done since I last potted? Honestly, quite a bit of stuff. Some big, some small. Some very important, some not important at all. But we'll go into it right now. And some things I want to say off-rip here. Uh, International Signing Day happened, and obviously the Mariners signed a couple guys worth uh, talking about. And International like Amateur Signing Day is definitely a topic worth talking about. I will not be talking about it on this particular podcast. I will likely talk about that on its own separate little mini podcast later this week, so look out for that one. But there will be no Feldman talk this podcast, just fair warning. I know it happened, but we'll not touch on it here. And then the other thing is AJ Pollock, obviously, I will talk about, but at the uh, last part of this pod. So after I got through everything else with the Mariners, AJ Pollock will end the pod uh, going into that signing that happened. So wait for that one. But the first thing I want to talk about is we hired Steven Vogt. The Mariners hired Steven Vogt as a bullpen and quality control coach, which is pretty sweet. Uh, obviously just retired with the A's and I saw a lot of A's fans pretty upset that he's signed with the Mariners to be a coach, but everything I've seen about Steven Vogt, uh, teammates who've talked about him, beat reporters who talked about him, fans who've talked about him. He's a great guy. seems like a great dude. And I can't imagine this is a bad move in any way. I'm sure this is a hundred percent knocked it right out of the park. Bullpen and quality control coach Steven Vogt. So that's cool. Uh, Another thing they announced before I get into transactions that they've made is they announced Felix Hernandez is going to be inducted in the Mayor's Hall of Fame, which is sick. Awesome. This is obviously something we expected. We just didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. Uh, But I I quite literally cannot talk about Felix Hernandez enough, man. He means a tremendous amount to me personally. He's probably my favorite baseball player of all time favorite Mariner of all time to this point. Julio may well take that mantle from him as my favorite baseball player of all time to watch. But Felix Hernandez will always have a special place in my heart. Uh, I was growing up around Seattle, and right when I started kind of paying attention to the Mariners in my, my youth, that was when those teams were awful, but Felix Hernandez was that dude. So my family and I, and every time we go to Mariners games, it was... Most of the time we'd go, we'd make sure Felix Hernandez was on the bump that day, like a lot of people, because uh, that team was not worth seeing besides that. 
And I, I, as a kid growing up, I emulated him on the mound. Uh, I, I learned a change up because of him. And that was my best pitch coincidentally, just like Felix. Uh, I was at his perfect game with my oldest brother. That is a moment that I will never forget and means a lot to me. And is a huge reason why I even have this podcast uh, as Felix Hernandez has, he made me like baseball. He made me love baseball. He made me love the Mariners. Uh, and I just, uh, I hope I can make it up for that. I don't know if I'm going to be able to, but awesome that he's going to be enshrined as a Mariners legend. I could go on and on about what he means to me, uh, but Felix Hernandez is awesome. The King going into the Mariners Hall of Fame, uh, and the video they put out announcing it was awesome too. So I'm sure, like the Etro one, uh, the Etro Hall of Fame stuff, I'm sure watching it I will cry like a little baby. Um, Felix Hernandez means that much more to me. So I'm very excited to see that happen. Uh, and that was the, the last part of news for non-transactional Mariners stuff. So getting into the transactions here, we signed Mike Ford. The Mariners brought Mike Ford back on a minor league deal. Will he see time with the big league club? Will we trade him again? How many teams will he play on this year? Find out on this season of Major League Baseball with Mike Ford. I wanted to get this done off rip off because how like Mike Ford, man, there's these dudes that come up for baseball teams sometimes out of necessity for injuries and, and have like a moment. And I feel like Mike Ford did not have a moment. And he's also just one of those dudes who's so beefy. It looks like he should hit so many home runs, but he just doesn't. And I know he played for the Angels last year. That's how bad the Angels were. They had him play like most of their first base for the latter half of that year after we released him. So it's interesting. I'm wondering how many teams he'll play for again this year. We'll have to find out. Or maybe, maybe we develop him into a, a Daniel Vogelbach caliber player. And I'm only saying that because of the way he looks. Moving on to another transaction. They, the Mariners signed Tommy LaStella, uh, who plays professional baseball. He's definitely one of the players in baseball, like for sure. One of the baseball players. No, nah, this is just mad. He'll be a Rainier. I, I, he'll only play second base for the big league club if he really needs to. Much like Colton Wong, it was a guy Jerry wanted a couple years ago and did not get. And he just can't let go sometimes, man. Like, I don't see the point of this signing. I guess it's an it's just another big league guy for depth. So, which is fine. Uh, just this signing does nothing for me. The only thing really, obviously the on the field, I'm not excited about for this. Uh, but with him and Matt Festa on the team, the Mariners are building a uh, an Italian-American contingent on this squad that I'm all for. And I we should lean more into that. We should go real Italian-American, if you know what I mean. I think there's not enough Italian representation in the league right now. And I think it might be at an all-time high. Uh, maybe Mike Piazza when he was in the league. That was probably the most. Um, but uh, Vinny Pescatano of the Royals is awesome. And he's playing on the Italian WBC team. That will be really fun. I think the mayor should trade for him, not only because he's a good player, but because his name is Vinny Pescatano, and him and Matt Festa and Tommy Lostella would really tear up the Mariners, if you know what I mean, huh? 
But that was another transaction that really doesn't mean much to me. Moving on from Tommy LaStella. Arbitration stuff happened since I last podcasted. Uh, the Mariners did agree with Ty France, Tom Murphy, and Paul Sewald on one-year deals to avoid arbitration. And then they didn't agree with Diego Castillo, Dylan Moore, or Teoscar Hernandez, which is unfortunate. I think Teoscar was looking for something in the $18 million range, and the Mariners were looking at something closer in the $16 million range. Obviously, I'm not too worried about the, you know, re-signing him right now. Like, they'll get the arbitration done, and, like, that's what arbitration's for. And I'm also not worried about Diego Castillo or Dylan Moore. They'll, they'll arbitrate. They'll get money. It's fine. The thing about this is it's an unfortunate step in extending Teoscar if that was their plan. So I don't know what they wanted to do with him. Obviously, trading him, they knew it was it was a rental. He's a free agent after this season. Uh, and I don't know if they wanted to extend him this offseason or if he plays really well again during the season, extend him. But this is not an encouraging step in that process uh, because now they're going to have to arbitrate and that can just lead to mixed feelings from both parties around the whole contract situation. I don't even know what his contract would look like. Uh, I've thought about it a little bit, but like Andrew Benintendi is a guy of similar value to Teoscar baseball-wise, and he got this offseason five years for $75 million, 15 average annual value, um, although he hit the market at two years younger at 28, and Teoscar will hit the market at 31. And then like Mitch Hanniger is a guy – of similar value at his peak a couple years ago. Hanniger is two years older than Teoscar right now, so at 32, he signs a three-year for $43.5 million, 14.5 average annual value. And there's a player opt-out after the second season with that one. Uh, so I'm assuming Teoscar's deal would be somewhere in the middle of that. However, I think with the universal DH, it only makes Teoscar's value go up because uh, his defensive metrics are, are poor. And I think that now every team has the DH option and is flexible with that. Uh, and he's a fantastic hitter. Like, he's an elite hitter. So I think universal DH across the league now only makes his value go up. So I'm thinking it would be, like, closer to the Benintendi deal despite hitting free agency three years older. I think it would probably be, like, four or five years. Like, five years, 80 to 90 million-ish. Like, throw a player option after year four. Like, they'd probably want to secure him through his age 35 season, maybe 36. So, sign him to four at, like, 16, 17 average annual value um, with a player opt-out after the fourth or something. Uh, I think that's probably what it would take, what it would look like based on the market and stuff. And also, it's an extension, too. I'm not talking about if he hits free agency. If he hits free agency... Uh, that's a different story that anything could happen there depending on what the market dictates. But based on this offseason and if the Mariners wanted to extend him before his contracts run out, I feel like it would take a, a Benintendi-type money deal to lock him up. But we'll see what he ends with in arbitration. I'm assuming it'll be between 16 and $17 million for this year. So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Uh, next thing on the list was the Mariners claimed uh, pitcher J.B. Bukowskis off of waivers, and they DFA'd Alberto Rodriguez in the process. I hope he makes it back into the minors. He's a very intriguing guy, intriguing prospect. 
I'm, I was looking forward to following his minor league season this year. Uh, and I, I think he'll end up back on the on the minor leagues team. I think he'll clear waivers, but we'll have to see. So they claimed this guy Bukowskis, which great name, JB Bukowskis, fantastic name. He has been dubbed the newest member of the bullpen lab, trademark. Jerry really loves first round picks, man. Of course, JB is a f- former first round pick. Uh, seems like it'll be another bullpen piece. I think at worst, it'll be a Rainiers to Mariners bullpen guy that'll fill in for injuries and stuff. You always need guys like that. Um, but at best, it could be another solid piece in this bullpen. Um, he was really, really great in a very small sample last season in AAA. Uh, he had a 2.42 ERA and uh, 22 and a third innings pitched with 22 strikeouts and four walks. Uh, and then he got hurt. He went on a 60-day IL with a grade 2 Terry's major muscle strain, which is definitely a muscle I'm super familiar with, obviously. Hate when I tear my Terry's major muscle. Uh, but it could be a potential, another one of those former first round picks Jerry gets. Um, clearly has good pitching tools. Um, we'll have to see how healthy he is coming off of that injury and the recovery. I'm sure the the pitching development of this team will really uh, do wonders with him. Honestly, it seems like it could be just another good bullpen guy adding to already one of the better bullpens in the league. And I really do trust this pitching development system they have. And like since Jerry took over, the arms and stuff they have developed in this system, not only the quality, but the quantity is astounding. And especially the ones contributing to the big league club right now in the rotation and the bullpen and also the ones in the minors and also the ones who they've traded. He's traded a lot of pitching prospects the past few years because they've done so much great development with them. They got them up to enough value to trade them for good big league pieces. So I just trust any pitcher with great tools that another team didn't want. I trust our, our pitching development staff to to whip them into shape. I just do. I think they've earned that benefit of the doubt for sure. And then on pitching as well, we made a small little trade trade for a guy named Justin Topa, which is a fun little name uh, in exchange for Joseph Hernandez, which I was, uh, I was a little sad. I mean, obviously we wouldn't have seen Joseph Hernandez in the bigs for a year or two, two or three years, but he was one of my starting pitchers in my minor league team of the year for 2022. Uh, he had a real, really good breakout season. Uh, I wish him nothing but the best. But we exchanged him for this guy, Justin Topa, who will seemingly be a like Rainiers, Mariners guy, bullpen guy the whole year, another depth piece. I don't have a whole lot else to him besides Topa. is a really fun last name. There's something there. You could do something with Topa, Topo Chico, Sparkling Water, Blani, you know. There's there's potential, uh, but I don't have a whole lot else to say on him besides we'll see him pitch in the bigs probably this year with the bullpen, and we'll see what he can give us. So all that to say, now is the time when I'm talking AJ Pollock. This was the biggest move we made uh, since I last potted, the biggest move we made all offseason free agency-wise uh, AJ Pollock seemed like he was a Mariner for weeks because they just kept like not signing anyone for left field, even though obviously that was a hole that the team identified they needed to to fix this offseason. Uh, and 
the players kind of got whittled down to AJ Pollock essentially being the guy. Uh, and it turned out the Mariners did sign him. Uh, I'll read a little bit of what Jerry had to say about him. Uh, he said, quote, AJ is a terrific fit for our roster among many qualify or quality traits. His high character and baseball IQ are tailor made for our group. While his experiences and key roles for championship quality teams will no doubt provide value in our ongoing development. Uh, I agree. I think in a vacuum, it's a really good signing uh, just because they really needed a right-handed hitting left fielder, one who could hit lefty pitchers well, and AJ, provi- AJ Pollock really provides great value against left-handed pitching. And then he's also another one of those just veteran guys who's been around on really good teams, and you just can't have enough of those on a contending team's roster, especially with younger hitters on the squad. Like he'll, it's just, it's, Unless you know he's like a locker room cancer, like and by all accounts, AJ Pollock is a good dude. Um, it's just invaluable to have a veteran presence like that in a younger clubhouse, especially one that's trying to contend right now. But like out of the vacuum of this being a great deal, it's just kind of disappointing that the offseason led to getting really excited about signing AJ Pollock. Like I do think an AJ Pollock type signing like this are are these augmentation signings you make with a contending team with a lot of team control uh, i think it's signings you kind of need to make as a team i just think there need to be some more signings besides this but we obviously know that and we've talked a lot about that uh it's just uh disappointing that this, it led to us fiending for aj pollock on twitter like we really went to went there that's what john stanton made us do on twitter this offseason what a demon because like Will Myers and Drixon Profar, Drixon Profar still out there, and he's obviously he's a he hits well from both sides. Like he hits lefties and righty pitchers pretty well. Uh, and then you have Will Myers, who I was just screaming at the Mariners to sign. It made perfect sense. They missed on him. They obviously didn't want to sign Profar. They still could sign Profar. To be honest, I wouldn't be against that. Uh, you could get them for two to three year deals. Uh, but so out of that vacuum. Pollock is still a good deal. It's just somewhat disappointing. It led to that. Uh, And then still very disappointing that the team is just okay, seemingly for now. The season hasn't started yet, obviously. But for now, they're just okay to play left field as a Kelnick, Trammell, lefties, uh, Pollock, righty platoon. Like, Pollock will always play against left-handed starting pitchers. And I am sure Kelnick will be the starter against right-handed starting pitchers. I just, I just, what, what, it's just like not a good strategy to bank on left field production coming from a 35-year-old who is aging, who's still a good hitter, but can really only mash against lefties now. He's not a very good hitter against righties, uh, especially that's tough because the majority of the pitchers you will face in the league are righties. And then putting it, putting the other production, these 400-odd plate appearances against right-handed hitting to either Pollock, who's bad at hitting right-handed hitters, or to Jared Kelnick or Taylor Trammell, who've shown you that, yes, they can hit really well in AAA, and yes, they're very young, and yes, they could eventually turn into good big league guys. But what have they shown you these past couple seasons that have told you that you can rely on them to be a solid contributor at the big league level. I just think that's not a championship mentality, especially when there were 
cheaper options besides the big outfielders to address that issue or even like trades. I know they traded for Teoscar, but like he replaced Mitch Hanniger in right field. So just going into the season with a Kelnick Pollock platoon in left field is not what I wanted to see from this team out of this offseason, especially when they had money to spend. So that is my piece. I've talked about it a lot. I, I really, really hope Kelnick or Tremeller both really puts it together this year. I just have little to no faith, especially with Kelnick, that he'll do that. He just hasn't shown that he has the ability to do that. I know he did have, like, when he barreled the ball up last year, he can hit the ball really fucking hard. He's really strong. I think he can be a good defender in the outfield, especially in the corner spots. He's a strong arm, and I think he could potentially be a big league starter. I just don't. He's he just doesn't have the top prospect pedigree to me anymore, which is why I thought they should try to to move him this offseason for someone more viable at a big league level. That being said, I mean, imagine if he puts it together this season, puts up like 25 home runs, 20 steals, plays 120 games in the outfield. Like, imagine that. I just don't see it happening at all. And I hope he proves me wrong. I really hope he proves me wrong. But now to go more into A.J. Pollock. So, A.J. Pollock's 35. Uh, and, of course, he was a former first-round pick. Because uh, Jerry Jerry's a little whore for, for former first-round picks, isn't he? Um, he was picked in the 2009 draft. Uh, he has had a pretty solid and, and long career. He majority has played with the Diamondbacks, but recently people probably know him. He was on the Dodgers, uh, won a ring with the Dodgers, and then was on the White Sox last year, didn't do a whole lot on their team. But he was on those really fun Diamondbacks teams with J.D. Martinez and Paul Goldschmidt. Like Those teams were awesome, uh, and they're the ones that drafted him, I'm pretty sure. But to go into what he's going to do on the field, uh, we signed him because he mashes lefties, and that's what we've been told. So does he? The answer is yes. He is historically and in recent years still has kept up his production as one of the better guys against left-handed pitching. Um, I have some numbers from the last five seasons since dating back to 2018, just for a little recency on uh, his lefty numbers. And yes, they are good. Uh, the only thing I really have an issue with is his expected numbers last year were a little inflated, or not inflated. His raw numbers were a little inflated last year because per stat cast, some of his expected like batting average, um, expected slugging, expected weighted on base average were a little uh, lower than what he actually put up, especially because the sample is a little small. But he also is 35, and aging will obviously naturally make his swing less potent. But I have no doubts that he will be a good hitter again against lefties next year if he remains healthy and that's very valuable to us as a team and will be when we're facing lefty pitchers so in the last five seasons since 2018 and this is per stat head he has a uh, 891 ops against left-handed pitching in 595 play appearances so the last five seasons he's basically played one very full season against left-handed pitching, if you know what I mean. Like, 600 plate appearances, that's so like the max you can do in a season or something. Uh, it, it, that amounts to one full season with an 891 OPS against lefties. That is a great OPS. Uh, and then in that same span, according to Fangraphs, he has averaged, in the last five years, at least a 143 WRC plus over that time against lefties, which is elite. That is 43% 
higher than league average against left-handed pitching. That is elite production against lefties. His raw numbers last season against lefties, again, in only 133 play appearances, so that's a tiny sample. Uh, he slashed 286, 316, 619 with a whopping 161 WRC+. plus. No shot he puts up those numbers again. Uh, super small sample, like 133 play appearances, but again, it's like, how many lefties are you going to face in a year? Like, I against lefties next year, if he's healthy all season, max 200 play appearances against lefties, maybe? Which, there's quite a bit of value to be had from that, but it's just interesting. I just saw a lot of people pointing out his last year's numbers with the 161 WRC+, and it's just such a tiny sample. Like, 133 plate appearances is like a month and a half a bowl. Like, that is not a big enough sample to make any, like, judgment. But it's not like with a bigger sample he was going to be under the 100 mark for WRC+. 161 is just absurdly high. But his overall numbers last year with 527 plate appearances, full season, uh, 245, 292, 469, with a 92 WRC+. So that really tells you how uh, below average he is against right-handed pitching right now. Uh, but he can still hit the ball hard. Uh, 61st percentile last year in hard hit percentage. Um, and at this point, his defense does leave a lot to be desired. Uh, but his his speed, according to StatCast, or uh, Baseball Savant at least, his speed, he can still run pretty well. So on the base pass, he can still run pretty well. And at least in the outfield, he's not super-duper slow in his 35-year-oldness. But it's not like he's going to give you plus outfield production. He's most likely going to be a slightly below-average outfielder, which is fine in left field. Uh, you have Julio in center covering a lot of that stuff, too, who's really good. So... It's not the end of the world, especially because, I mean, we didn't sign him to play defense. We signed him to match lefties. So he'll definitely be a really serviceable left fielder. Um, his, really, his value only at the plate is against lefties, like I've said. But like like I've, like I said before, A.J. Pollock is really not my main concern with our current left field situation. Uh, I think this is a good signing, and I'm happy that we're going to have A.J. Pollock on the team. And it will be nice to have a guy who we know we can rely on at least to, to be a veteran and put in good plate appearances, and we can count on him against left-handed pitching. But that left field production, I'm going to be keeping an eye on that all year, and it could be something come trade deadline time. Maybe if Brian Reynolds is still available at that point, they get desperate and they need more production from that spot, and they make a trade. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see. I, th I think that's our weakest spot on the team. But A.J. Pollock does really help out there. Um, and I'm excited to watch him play for the Seattle Mariners. So he gets my full support. And I think it's pretty good signing from them. And that's all I have for y'all today. So really appreciate listening. Please, if you made it this far, rate and review wherever you're listening. Uh, uh, at the start, you heard that automated message, I believe. I didn't record it. I don't know who recorded that. I think it's just automatic telling you uh, you had a task to complete. I think it was to spread the word of the Chaos Ball podcast to um, literally everyone you know and leave a rating and review and tell everyone else to do the same thing. Um, so if you're listening to this, um, 
that's not an option. You have to do that. That's a requirement. So I would get on that if I were you. Uh, But I really appreciate everyone listening. Uh, Have a good rest of your week. And look out soon for that mini podcast about the International Signing Day. Uh, But with that, I will sign off. And have a good rest of your day. And go Seattle Mariners and AJ Pollock specifically.